Hi, thanks for downloading our sermon series from Church of the City in Guelph, Ontario. This sermon series, entitled Song of Songs, will contain adult subject matter and may not be suitable for all listeners. We wanted to give you this moment to consider the listening audience before proceeding. Again, thank you for downloading our podcasts. Okay, I will be wrapping us up today in Song of Songs. We will be reading from Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 5 until 14. If you do not have a Bible with you today, our Frontlines team is up here. You can just put up your hand, and they will come and graciously hand you a Bible. And if you don't have one at home, you can take this home as a gift. And uh, yeah, just take it home. Remember us by your Bible. Okay, so once again, we are reading Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 5 to 14. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree, I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she, there she who bore you was in labor. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. We have a little sister, and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build on her battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. I was a wall, and my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. He let out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruits a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand, and the keepers of the fruit, two hundred. O you who dwell in the garden, with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. This is the word of the Lord. Well, hey, it's great to be with you. If uh, you missed Matt uh, introduce me, my name is Mark, and I'm from Vancouver, and the way I know about you all is through Matt, and it's actually good to be here. We've been getting to know him the last three or four years, and I thought that this Church of the City thing was just something he'd made up and told stories about as he traveled to various events, and to, to actually come and see it's actually a thing. It's a, it's a real thing. It's cool. Uh, and learning church growth strategies, I've met like three other Matts here today, so it's like you just find a bunch of guys with the same name, and you have a church, I guess, right? So that's good. Anyway, uh, serve with... Uh, an organization called C2C. We're changing our name to Multiply as of January 2019. So in a couple months, C2C kind of fades away. But anyway, we'll talk about that a little more at the end. And uh, a privilege to be able to come and speak to you until I saw the text. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> Seriously, you're in Song of Solomon. Great. I'll uh, listen online. But anyway, it was good, though, however, when, uh, when Matt gave me the, uh, the text and a little bit of sense of relief, because chapter 8 is like the pinnacle of this book. It is the summing up of everything, and it's probably one of the least sensual of the text, so that's good, too. Uh, but it is the text uh, that we just heard read by Andrea that's probably the high point of the entire book. 
Uh, so I'm going to have you have your Bibles open because we've got a long way to go. Matt gave me 35 minutes, and I think I'll take double that. But anyway, um, our text is Song of Songs, uh, chapter 8, verse 5 to 14, uh, which you just heard read. And really, in that section, there are four short poems. So you've heard this over the course of this series, uh, that this book is a series of poems that are strung together, uh, probably written by multiple authors. Uh, and there are some say 24 poems, others divide it differently, but if you think there's 24, we're dealing with the last four little short poems. And if the title of the book is called Song of Songs, or the best song of all, so you know like King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the war to end all wars, the song of all songs, then some would say this first poem in these four is the poem of, of all poems that it is the highlight of the book. A a commentator named M.H. Pope says this, take this as the high point and even the defining poem in the collection. So in other words, we have climbed to the top of the mountain of this discussion of love and now from this mountaintop we can see the vistas of this subject of love, God's love and the love that we share one to another. And it's really a great text because it takes us to the, the heart of the scriptures, uh, the core theme not only of our relationships as husband and wife, our relationships as brothers and sisters in Christ, but actually to the core theme of the entire Bible. The entire Bible is God's love story towards his people, the never-ending love of God. And there are literally dozens and dozens of texts, the, probably some of the best known, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his son. Why did Jesus come? Because of God's love. Uh, 1 John 3, how great the Father's love that he has lavished on us. A lavish expression of his love that we could be called his children. Uh, Romans 5, God demonstrates his love towards us. While we were still his enemies, while we were walking away from him, he came pursuing us. He showed us his love. Even when we didn't want him, when we were running away from him, he pursued us and, and dozens of others like that. So I want to just jump to the end of the message and then we'll, uh, we'll come back to it. But I want to tell you how we're going to wrap up. So seven weeks on the most ideal of all human loves. But what we're going to see, and you've, you've heard it all the way through this series, is actually that loving like that is actually impossible. And as you read through this text and you'll read just the relationship between husband and wife, but thinking about how we love one another, uh, and you think of how far short we all fall in our love relationship one with another. But beyond that, it also points us to the one and the only one who is able to love like that. Because there is one who in, in, in an ideal realm was able to love. Paul said his love was shed abroad in our hearts And, of course, referring to Jesus, the lover of our souls. So I would say to you, without knowing any of you personally, married or single, young or old, whether you're highly educated or not very educated at all, rich or poor, male or female, the question that you need to ask yourself is this, have you experienced the love of your heavenly Father? Do you know that you are deeply loved? That there is one in the heavens who loves you in a rich, deep, and pure way. Because this is the message of the gospel. The message that our world desperately needs to see and hear and know that there is one who loves you. And beyond the earthly realm of human relationships, there is one who deeply loves you. Male, female, rich, poor, young, old. Every one of you in this room is deeply loved by the Father. 
So our text is uh, chapter 8, uh, verse 5, begins the picture, and it's a question. So just follow along in your text. I'm not going to reread what Andre already read, but in verse 5, the question is really asked, who's that coming up uh, from the hill, leaning on the one that she loves? And so the voices here have been referred to as a chorus. Uh, their family or their friends, they're watching this couple in their relationship, and so they're looking out the windows, and they're looking out to the countryside, and they see this couple coming in who's been out in the country, who's been out in a, a wilderness retreat. And as you've read through this book and you've heard the messages, you will know that that metaphor is used throughout the book of let's get out into creation. Let's get out under the trees. Let's get out into the gardens. Let's get out of the city and just go enjoy some time together. We still use this kind of language today. Let's plan a romantic getaway. Let's just get away from the busyness of life. Let's go up to the cottage. Let's pack the camping gear and just get away for a few days. I just want to be alone with you. And now they're headed back into town, arm in arm, coming back to reality, back to daily life. And they're like, who's this couple that we see? And that, that woman who's leaning in on that guy that she loves. And as you back it up further to the beginning of the chapter, you hear the level of comfort that she, it's her voice, the woman's voice, wants to have with this one that she loves. So chapter 8, verse 1 it's this image of the two best friends. She's like, I wish you were like a brother to me. And you're like, that's really weird. It's like, no, 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 think about the culture. The culture and the time and place she was in, it didn't allow for public expression, for women to express their love or their affection in a public way like she would want. And she's like, I wish you were like one of my brothers. Then nobody would bat an eye at our public display of affection. I wish we could be like kids again that I could chase you, that I could tease you, that I could kiss you, and nobody would care because we're just kids. That's what kids do. That's what little brothers and sisters do. They wrestle, they fight, they kiss, they make up, they just have fun. I wish that you were like one of my brothers because then I would just be free to express my love for you. So that's the backdrop behind it. And as they walk into the city, the woman breaks into this final song of commitment and honor and high respect for her lover. Verse 6. And Tremper Longman, in his commentary, says this, This verse is arguably the most memorable and intense of the entire book. Set me as a seal on your heart, a seal on your arm. Uh, that text is really personal to me. Uh, so when Matt gave me the text, I'm like, I know that text. 31 and a half years ago, March 21st, the first day of spring, Muskoka Baptist Conference, I stood at the altar and shared vows with a beautiful young woman from a little village called Rosso. And as part of that ceremony, she surprised me with a song that she wrote, and the words were based on this text. Set me as a seal on your heart and a seal on your arm. Her desire in this text is for a public display that these two belong to one another. Eugene Peterson puts it this way in modern language. Hang my locket around your neck, wear my ring on your finger. A seal in your heart, a seal on your arm. A seal was something that declared ownership and an authority or even an authorship. I wrote this letter. So a king could put his seal, so take a little chunk of, of soft clay or melt some wax and then stamp it with the insignia of his ring and it would seal that letter shut. And only the registered owner of the recipient of that letter could open or unseal it. So like a registered letter today that you have to sign for when the, uh, the postman delivers to you. I know most of you, 
you don't know what mail is, but there used to be a time that these things, paper would come to your door and, yeah, anyway. <laughs> Dating myself there, man, wow. What the woman is saying here is actually very straightforward. I'm proud to be known as yours. And I want a watching world to know. I don't want to hide the fact that we belong to one another. So set me as a seal on your heart, a seal on your arm. It's critical to note here, and you've noted this throughout the book, she is the one expressing this ownership. That's quite interesting. It's the woman saying, I want to express my ownership over the man. And that might surprise you if you think the Bible is only entirely patriarchal, that it's always the man taking the lead in every relationship. It is she who says here, I want to be the seal on your heart, the seal on your arm. In other words, I, as your wife, want this mark of ownership on your life. Will you give yourself to me? Will you let a watching world know that you belong to me? Mark your heart. Mark your arm. Inside and out. I want you to belong to me, and I want the world to know it. So, in our day, the simplest illustration, rings. Rings play a very important role in our courtship. A bunch of you in the room that are married may have these. Some of you may have one of these called a purity ring that your parents gave you as a youngster saying, you're going to wear this ring until you exchange it for an engagement ring or a wedding ring. Engagement rings are critically important, and when a, when a woman gets an, an engagement ring, it's amazing how she starts talking with her hands, and particularly her left hand, and <laughs> waving it like this. And so we were out to dinner a month or so ago with some friends that we've known for a long time. They were neighbors of ours and uh, learned to know and love them, not married folks. They've been together 12 years, and we're out to dinner, and it didn't take Carolyn too long to see the sparkle on her hand. He's like, oh my goodness, when did this happen? <laughs> So Boxing Day, we get to do their marriage ceremony. After living together 12 years, they're finally going to tie the knot. There's a very interesting conversation. Why do you want a pastor to tie the knot on this thing that, you know, what does that mean to you? But that ring signifies something. Rings are symbolic. Uh, at wedding ceremonies, you hear things like, well, the circle. It's an endless circle, and love is a never-ending circle. It just goes round and round, and sounds boring. Precious metals, precious gems, the, the value and the costly nature of love. And that may all be true, the symbols that you wear on your hands. But frankly, and probably most important in the message in the, in the land that we live in is the message that the ring sends to a watching world. What that ring says is this one's taken. And most cultures, many cultures, have similar practices, different expressions. In most European countries, so our daughter married a German citizen, and you go to Germany to visit, and the first thing I notice is none of the guys have wedding rings on. I'm like, what's with all these guys that aren't wearing wedding rings until I look at the right hand? And realize they all got rings in the right hand. So I'm asking my son-in-law, and he goes, yeah, in Germany, we wear our wedding rings on our right hand. You're like, okay, fair enough. In Hindu culture, when a woman is married, she gets glass bangles that she wears on her wrists. And she never takes those glass bangles off until her husband dies. Then one of her sons will smash those glass bangles. As a widow, she is freed from those vows. Amish communities, Hutterite communities, single men are clean-shaven. So ladies, you want to look around the room, potential mates? Look for the clean-shaven guys. Married men grow a beard. It shows that they are taken. They're different cultural symbols. So at least here in our North American culture, it might not mean this everywhere in the world, but in our culture, a ring on any other finger is open to interpretation. 
It could be a gift somebody gave you. It could be just a trinket you saw, you liked it, you picked it up, you bought it. It's just jewelry. But here in North America, a ring on the left hand says, back off, buddy, or stand back, girls. I know what you want, but stand back, girls. (laughs) I'm spoken for. I'm taken. There's somebody who loves me. Whether she's at my side or, as is the case with me and my wife today, she flies in on Monday, so we're however many miles we are, she's out in Vancouver. And I know, nevertheless, she's at the other end of the country. She loves me totally, entirely, freely, completely. At my side or not, I'm loved and I'm cared for, and that's what this ring reminds me. And a watching world, it says, no need to even ask. I've given my heart, my mind, my being, my body to another. I belong to somebody. There's a seal. There's a seal on my life. It's kind of a cheesy statement, but maybe you've seen this. Probably not, because it's cheesy and you're not cheesy. A wedding ring is like a tourniquet a man wears to keep him out of circulation. (laughs) What the Shulamite is saying... She's declaring her love to her lover, and it's simply this. I want people to know that you're mine, and I want people to know that I am yours. And then she goes into a trilogy of metaphors to describe the power of love. Love is as strong as death in the grave. Love can't be quenched. It's like a fire, and love is priceless. It can't be bought. We're going to look at each of those. Love is strong as death. In other words, it's all-powerful because if you haven't understood it yet, this side of eternity and this side of Jesus' return, death has all power over us. The last time I checked, the stats are still 100%. Every one of us, unless Jesus returns soon, will one day either die young or will grow old, but eventually we all will pass through the grave. And so like the power that death has over us, she's saying the power of love holds incredible sway. You know this. Love can make people do stupid things. In the name of love, people make bad decisions. You want a biblical example? Look at the character named Samson. The first words out of Samson's mouth, do you know this? The first words recorded, read his story, were, I saw a woman, get her for me. Those are the very first words the Bible records out of Samson's mouth. He's talking to his mom and dad. Samson's got a lust problem. I saw that girl. I want that girl. And you know that Delilah's charms worked her way in his life, and he walked away from his sacred vow in the name of love. Uh, You want a modern-day example? Uh, Some of you watch the series The Crown or you follow the royal family. If you go back a generation or so ago, this guy named David, King Edward VIII, one of the shortest reigning monarchs in uh, England's history, for the love of a woman. He became king in January, and he abdicated less than a year later. Why? Because he fell in love with a twice-divorced American woman that he wanted to have as, as his wife, and as king, you could not be married to a divorced woman. And so he had to abdicate. In the name of love, he gave up what many would say was the the most powerful position on the planet in that day and time. Love, jealous like the grave. Strong as death and jealous like the grave. Some translations say fierce, unending, relenting, unyielding. Jealous can be used in both a positive and a negative sense. I want to point that out. Jealousy can be destructive and corrosive in any relationship. If I'm jealous of a friend, if I'm envious of a friend, if I'm jealous of my lover, it can be very negative if it comes out of insecurity or fear or control. 
And so you look up definitions and many are negative. Uh, one I looked up said suspicious fears and envious resentments. But jealousy also has a positive side. It is used in this sense, vigilant in maintaining or guarding something. Dictionary.com gives that positive application of jealousy. Vigilant in maintaining or guarding. What is meant here is a protective guardianship. Not in a destructive way. Not in a corrosive way. Not in a controlling way, but in a healthy watch care. It's like a parent's care over their little child. To guard them, to protect them, to corral them, to train them, to equip them, to hold them back so that they don't go running out into the highway. Although there are days we say, can you go play on the highway? But anyway, why is that? Because parents want their kids to flourish. And so we guard our children. We're jealous over the lives of our children. That's a positive sense of jealousy. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 15, there's a reference that I think uh, refers to this kind of guardianship and protection. And I, I, I missed, I, I, I heard four of the messages. I didn't get chapter 2. I don't know if you talked about this. But a phrase there in chapter 2, verse 15, Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. And what she's saying is watch out for those little things that come between us. So the imagery is foxes running through the vineyards when the vineyards are in bloom and foxes playing and running their games and their tails are smashing all the, the blossoms off the vineyard and you know what's going to happen is there'll be no fruit because all the blossoms have been knocked off. So capture those little foxes before they destroy the relationship. Watch care, jealousy over the relationship. In a positive sense, the Bible talks about God's jealous love for his children, a protective guardianship. It's, it's often referred to as the zeal of the Lord. And it's not typically the language we use around romantic relationships, marriage relationships, or that. But if I ask you this question, are you zealous for your marriage? Are you zealous for your marriage? Zealous is this defined this way, ardently active, devoted, diligent. Are you zealous in your love relationships? The antonym, the opposite of zeal, is apathy. Apathy, there's no passion, there's no emotion, there's no excitement. Now, which do you want to define your love relationship? No passion, no zeal, no excitement, or diligent, active, devoted. So I don't know how those words strike you. Uh, strong as the grave, as jealous as the grave, as strong as death. Uh, they, they, they don't sound too romantic. My love is like death. I'm as jealous as the grave. I want you like the coffin wants you. I've, what she's saying is, I've got to have you. I am going to get you. I am chasing you down. And so the question, of course, is what is the passion level in your love relationship? And not just the erotic passion of the bedroom, but the devotion and the diligence and the guarding of the vineyard, the guarding of the relationship. Uh, as I was preparing, the David Crowder song came to mind, Oh, How He Loves Us. And I don't know if you've seen that song around here. It's a few years old now. But some of the words say this. He's jealous for me. Love's like a hurricane. I'm a tree. Bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy. The love of the Father blowing like a hurricane wind that we bend underneath it. And we are his portion. He is our prize. Drawn to redemption by the grace in his eyes. If his grace is an ocean we're all sinking. Oh, how he loves, oh, how he loves, oh, how he loves you and me. 
The next image is simply built on the strength of the two, and I'm not going to take a lot of time because we got further to get. But the flame, interesting that we sang it. I didn't know what the music was going to be today, but all-consuming fire. The words to that song that we sang, just go back and replay them in your mind. That's what this love is about. A love that cannot be extinguished. Its flames are like the flame of the Lord. Set me ablaze, Lord, with your consuming fire. A fire that can't be quenched. Waters can't overcome it. And finally, she says, a love of this kind cannot be bought with money. This kind of love is a gift that we give to one another. You can buy sex, but you cannot buy love. Love must be freely given to the one you love. So you got four striking pictures or images. The seal, the symbol of ownership, death in the grave, the persistent, unrelenting, irreversible chasing of the grave, fire, and not a safe fire in a fireplace, but an all-consuming fire that can't be quenched, and finally a love that can't be bought or sold. Some say that verse 6 and 7 give us the ideal and others would say, yeah, and it's idealistic. And it's probably both. That overview is really the core of this final chapter. And we could end there and you'd be happy because it would be a short weekend. But it's worth a scan through the rest of the chapter. There's three more short poems that finish out this book. Verse 8 and 9 are really interesting verses. As you scan them there, they speak of the protecting oversight of a family or we could say even of a community. And the imagery is one of brothers looking out for their little, little sister. And commentators ask the question, so where's the dad? Where's the father? Because in this culture, they would have been patriarchal. The father would have had headship over the home. So why is it the brothers looking after their sister? Maybe dad was gone. Either he was absent traveling or he was dead. And now the brothers are looking after their sister. But in, in any case, the men in the family true to Middle Eastern form, the men were looking after the well-being of the women. Now, let's just pause there, and I know you've heard this through the series. You could hear this in its patriarchal extreme, and it has been used in a patriarchal extreme where men have been overbearing, have been controlling or manipulating. But in its purest sense, it's a beautiful picture of the watch care over our youth and over our children. And that men in this culture took responsibility to say, I will look after the young in our family tree. So these brothers, in essence, are saying these things. They're saying to themselves, how can we help our sister reach her wedding night with all the joy and anticipation that is rightfully hers? How can we help this little girl become a bride one day and that we will help her get there and, ex and experience that joy? How can we protect her? How can we keep her that no one takes advantage of her, that no one uses her or abuses her? How do we guard her from those rascally men because we know that men are only looking for one thing? How do we protect her? On the other side of the coin, how do we protect her from herself? In her boy crazy years, how do we keep her from running after men that she shouldn't be running after? And there's a first hint of this is way back in chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 6, when she says, my brother sent me away to work in the vineyard, and she's upset with him. She's like, you wonder why I'm so dark brown and tanned? It's because my brother sent me out to work in the vineyard, and she was angry with him. Why did the brothers send her away to work in the vineyard? There's a lot of speculation around it. But some of it might have been to protect her from some tomcat who was hanging around their neighborhood. They wanted to get her out of the neighborhood because there was some guy hanging out or to protect her from herself and her own sexual curiosity, perhaps. So there's two equal but opposite images that are given in this text. 
If she's a wall, we'll take this action. If she's a door, we'll take this action. Our response as brothers is to some degree depending on how she as a woman sees herself. It's a powerful text for fathers with daughters. How many of you are dads with daughters in the room? Just raise your hand, good and high. You need to listen up. How many of you brothers have sisters in the room? You need to listen up. And I'm a guest and I'm not coming back, so it's okay, I can offend you. (laughs) It is the protective impulse that says, here is a beautiful little girl. Here's this beautiful little girl in our house. And she is growing up way too fast. She hasn't even reached puberty yet, but the pages of the calendar are flipping like in the wind. And she's growing and growing and growing and growing. And before you know it, she's going to be turning the heads of boys around town. And so let me tell you, boys, no one messes with my girls. That's what these brothers are saying. Eugene Peterson paraphrases it, puts it into modern language, the message. He says, our little sister has no breasts. What should we do with our little sister when men come asking for her? She's a virgin and vulnerable. We'll protect her. If they think she's a wall, we'll top it off with barbed wire. If they think she's a door, we'll barricade it. Uh, You want a modern version of this? I asked Matt if he'd used it. He hadn't. Google application to date my daughter. It's worth reading. (laughs) It's five or six pages long. It starts with basic information like name, date of birth, height, weight, IQ, grade point average. It goes on to ask some questions about the things you own. You're applying to date my daughter. Do you own or have access to a van? Yes or no. A truck with oversized tires, yes or no? A waterbed, yes or no? A pickup with a mattress in the back, yes or no? A tattoo? Do you have an earring, nose ring, pierced tongue, pierced cheek, or belly button ring? If you answered yes to any of the above, discontinue your application. (laughs) There's an essay section. In 50 words or less, what does late mean to you? In 50 words or less, what does do not touch my daughter mean to you? In 50 words or less, what does abstinence mean to you? And then there's a lot of other things. It includes five signatures, the applicant's signature, the mother's signature, the father's signature, the signature of your pastor, your priest, or rabbi, and the signature of your member of legislative assembly. And then it says, please allow four to six years for processing. If you get through the process, and as you're preparing yourself for the process, you might want to read the appendix, Daddy's Rules for Dating. Now, I'm not going to read them all. There's 10 of them, but some of them are really good. Rule number one, if you pull into my driveway and honk, you better be delivering a package because you're surely not here to pick anything up. (laughs) Rule number two, you do not touch my daughter in front of me. You may glance at her so long as you do not peer at anything below her neck. If you cannot keep your eyes or hands off my daughter's body, I will remove them. (laughs) Rule number four. I'm sure you've been told that in today's world, sex without utilizing a barrier method of some kind can kill you. Let me elaborate. When it comes to sex, I'm the barrier and I will kill you. (laughs) Rule number five. It's usually understood that in order for us to get to know each other, we should talk about sports, politics, and other issues of the day. Please don't do this. 
The only information I require from you is an indication of when you expect to have my daughter safely back to my house, and the only word I need from you on that subject is early. Uh, Rule number eight, the following places are not appropriate for a date with my daughter. Places where there are beds, sofas, or anything softer than a wooden stool. (laughs) Places where there is darkness. Places where there is dancing, holding hands, or happiness. (laughs) Places... Places where the ambient temperature is warm enough to induce my daughter to wear shorts, tank tops, midriff t-shirts, or anything other than overalls, a sweater, and a goose-down parka zipped up to her throat. (laughs) Movies with strong romantic or sexual themes are to be avoided. Movies that feature chainsaws are okay. (laughs) Hockey games are okay. Old folks' homes are better. And then rule number nine, uh, just the last one, don't lie to me. I might appear to be a slow, pot-bellied, middle-aged, dim-witted has-been, but on issues relating to my daughter, I am the all-knowing, all-seeing, merciless God of your universe. If you ask where you're going, if I ask you where you're going and with whom you have one chance to tell me the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, I have a shotgun, a shovel, and five acres behind the house. Do not trifle with me. That's a modern version. But these brothers are saying, we're going to watch over our little sister. So my daughters are married women with kids of their own these days. But as a father, I remember very well the first time I realized that a young man was checking out my daughter. I could drive you to the exact Petrocan station on North Glenmore Road in Kelowna, British Columbia and walk you right into the counter where it happened. My daughter was with me, we had filled up with gas, we had gone inside to buy whatever, a candy bar or something, and as I'm handing my cash or debit or credit across the thing, I'm handing it and I'm handing it and I'm handing it and I'm like, what is wrong with you dim-witted 16-year-old kid until I realize he's staring at my daughter next to me and I wanted to reach across the counter and grab his throat. It was a weird emotion, and I still feel it today. It welled up within me. Get your eyes off my little girl. We can joke about it, and we can have some laughs. But there's a serious question for all of us. How can we possibly raise daughters to be the women of God that we hope that they will one day become in a culture that is telling them that their primary power is the power of sex appeal. Dads and brothers, those of you literally who are dads and brothers, what are you doing to help your daughters and your sisters? Sometimes I see young women walking around our city and I have one major question that goes through my mind and I want to roll down the window and yell very loud, where is your father? And then I want to ask a follow-up question. What dad in his right mind would allow his little girl out of the house dressed the way you're dressed? You see, there's two images in the text. There's a wall and there's a door. If our sister's like a wall, then we're going to add strength to her resolve. In other words, if she is a woman of strength... If she's a woman with a strong sense of identity, if she knows what she wants in a man, she is a woman of resolve, she is like a wall, she's a talk-to-the-hand type of a woman, then we're going to simply shore her up. We're going to add the artillery guns on the top of the wall. We're going to keep the circling sharks at bay until she one day meets the one 
to whom she desires to give her love and her life because she's a wall. She's a strong woman. If, on the other hand, our little sister is weaker resolved, if for whatever reason she understands her life more like a door, an easy entrance, Matt spoke on this a few weeks ago, that the door is an imagery for an invitation to sexual advance. Swinging open and shut, the hinges turn quickly. She's foolish. For whatever reason, she's easily swayed by men. She believes that she's got to answer every knock on the door, every ring of the bell. If she believes she has to show her love in a particular way to win or to keep her man, if she's a door, then we're going to build a barricade across that door. We're going to protect her from herself. Now, I realize that a message like this treads on thin ice in the culture that we live in with sexual revolution and freedom and all that. And some of you might wonder who this old man is and what generation I dropped out of. I'm old enough to be most of your dad. That's okay. And it is okay because I'm a guest and I probably won't get invited back and I'll be gone tomorrow. So if I offend you, you'll get over it. But let me ask you the question. As an individual, as a church community, how seriously do we take the responsibility to present our children to their future spouses? in purity and in passion, prepared for the joys and the responsibility of marriage. Are we, so those of you in this room, and the younger ones are down the hallway, are we in this room taking watch care over those who are down the hallway? How many young men are exposed to pornography at too young of an age and form lifelong devastating addictions because mom and dad were too afraid to take away the computer? because they couldn't stand the wrath of this young teenager? How many young women are allowed free and open access to Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, Tumblr, and every other kind of online platform? The stats tell us today that 95% of teens in North America have access to a smartphone. 95% of teenagers have an access to a smartphone, most of them access to unlimited data. And 45% of them say they're basically online constantly. We've tested this. If you've got nieces and nephews who are in that younger generation, the millennials, just text them right now and see how long it takes to get a response. We've done this with our nieces and nephews, guaranteed within 30 seconds. Sometimes within 10 seconds, there's a response back. They are online all the time. What role do we have to come alongside, not with a prudish, fearful protectionism, but with a joyful, firm hand on the shoulder saying, let me point you towards something better. Let me talk to you about your future life. The text goes on with the woman's own words in verse 10. When she basically says, I'm a wall, and now my breasts are like towers. In other words, this little girl who hasn't yet reached puberty is now a full-grown woman. My breasts are full, and I'm ready to give my love to my beloved. I was the wall. I was like that strong woman. I kept myself pure, but now I'm ready. And he'll look me in the eyes. And he will find deep peace and security here as we welcome each other into this wedding bed that we've protected for one another. It's a really intriguing text. Her brothers are saying, in essence, we need to have a meeting. I think it's a really relevant conversation for every mom and dad and brother and sister in the room. Look at the little children running the hallways. 
They're so innocent. If we could just take a tour right now and walk down the halls, something like 60 or 80 little kids down those hallways, and look at them and try to imagine them, it's going to be really quickly. They're dressed in their wedding best and they're walking down an altar to give their life to somebody else. And then just as quick as that, they're going to grow old. And they're going to be moving slower than they have before, but they're old people still holding hands and still in love with one another. Do we have a long-range view of where these children are headed? Imagine them teetering along, an old couple, a fine wine that gets old better with age. This conversation is worthy of a church meeting. I don't know how often you guys have church meetings, but this would be a great discussion. We've got a responsibility for one another. We've got a responsibility to plan ahead. Long before these little ones are thinking about marriage, we're thinking about their marriage. We're looking ahead and we're preparing them. And I, I understand I might be making some of you nervous with that kind of line of thinking. You're, you might be wondering, talk about arranged marriages, is that what you're looking at? Like your daughter can't date anybody you don't approve, your son can't, you know, what are you thinking about? Overprotective parents, paranoid interrogations. But as one commentator says of this text, this presents a principle that is often overlooked in the Western world and dangerously overemphasized in other parts of the world. That the family has a shared responsibility for the purity and romantic supervision of the young of the family. You know the pendulum, how it has swung. In the West, it's free reign. Kids do whatever they want. Parents have no say whatsoever. In the East, there's probably still cultures where it is way too overproductive. The biggest factor in this text is this woman understands her own value. That's where that poem takes us next. In verse 11 and 12, the third of the fourth poem, just a comment because we're getting too long. Solomon has a vineyard, but I've got a vineyard too, she says. Solomon has leased out his vineyard. He gets a thousand pieces of silver. I'll give my vineyard to the one that I choose to give it to. Her vineyard is under her control. And then this statement from a commentator, the attitude of this maiden is quite different from that of most people in the modern Western world. She saw genuine value in both her virginity and, more importantly, in herself. She was not to be cheaply and easily given away, and therefore she found a man who truly valued her, estimating her worth and correctly, correctly and highly. She's like, I own this vineyard. Solomon has his vineyard, and he might lease it out for a 1,000 pieces and pay his workers 200 bucks. Whatever, you do with your vineyard what you want. This is my vineyard. I know who I am as a woman, and I am in control of my vineyard. Thank you very much, is what she's saying. Women, you need to be strong. Finally, verse 13 and 14. The final poem of the book, number four in today's text. The woman and her lover are whispering to one another, come walk in the cool of the garden. We, we get to overhear their whispers, or in our vernacular, we get to read their private emails. We hear their desire for one another. I want to be with you. Now, some have commented that this is a very anticlimactic way to end such a provocative book. Wow, what a letdown. This is how this thing ends? But others have said, no, you know what? It's actually very realistic. Because we've seen the passion, we've seen the courtship, we've heard their desire for and their praise of one another, and now we get this picture of this ongoing dance of life. I want to hear your voice. I want to walk in the garden with you, hand in hand. Come away quickly, my love, come. We've been separated too long. I can't wait to be with you again. And there's so much here, the beauty 
and passion of a mature marital love. But as we wrap the book up, and I told you where we were headed, it is so critical to take note that this kind of love that you've been studying for the last seven weeks is not natural. It's not humanly natural to us. The Song of Solomon's is not just an allegory or a metaphor. That's been very clear. We shouldn't simply read it, as some have, as just a picture of God's love for the church. As Matt and others have taught so clearly the past several weeks, it is a clear expression of the sexual design that God has gifted us with as his children. But it is also no less than an image of God's love for us. It's not only God's love for us, but it is also not less than God's love for us. And as the old guy in the room, I can simply affirm what you've heard these past four weeks. I didn't, or seven weeks. I didn't have time to listen to all of them, but I did get through four of them. The culture around us has given us a totally different message about sexuality than the scriptures give us. And after 40 or 50 years of the so-called sexual revolution, sexual freedom, we need to ask our culture some questions. We need to ask, so how's that working for you? How's that really going for you? Are you actually happy and fulfilled? What of all the brokenness? God's plan for flourishing, for freedom and fulfillment is a good plan. God's plan is good. In all the seasons of life, it is a good plan. Carolyn and I will, from time to time, joke we see a, a little wrinkled up old couple walking hand in hand. And we'll be like, that's going to be us, babe. Just a couple years, we're almost there. We're going to look like Billy Crystal and Carol Kane, Miracle Max and his wife on Princess Bride. You know that one? Shut up, witch. I'm not a witch. I'm your wife. We're going to be like that very soon, honey. It would be wrong, however, if we didn't bring it full circle to say it's impossible. Matt said it several times throughout the text, the Song of Solomon presents an idealized, quote-unquote, idealized view of what sex and marriage can be and maybe should be. But the imagery portrayed here can also be a crushing weight on several levels. The studies and the statistics tell us that in North America, the majority of people, the majority of people in North America live with some level of sexual frustration, Desires unfulfilled, painful experiences, either of abuse or of intimacy gone bad. And I'm not going to take the time to re-preach that message, but if you missed week four on the bedroom, go back and listen to it online. Sexual intimacy, and, and Matt shared some of the statistics, some of the stories that are common in our day about sexual struggles. So it's possible to come away from a series like this and feel actually worse about your sex life than you did going into the series. Thank you very much for that series, Pastor. You could read and hear the romantic and sometimes erotic conversations between the Shulamite woman and her lover, and you could wonder why your sex life sucks. You could hear God's ideal for husbands and wife to share in regular, passionate, Love making, And you could say to yourself, well, that's just a distant memory in my mind. That only lasted for a really short while around our honeymoon or before those dang kids arrived. Or some of you would say, we actually never had that. Never had it. Some of you could be in a season where the reality of sickness or health 
is pressing in on you, where one partner is not able to enjoy sexual intimacy for any number of health reasons, and sexual intimacy changes as we age. Phil Calloway, a comedian out from Prairie Bible School, he, he talks about the three stages of married life. I love this. Tri-weekly, tri-weekly, and tri-weekly. I'm like, yeah, there you go. If you read the ideal, if you hear the beauty portrayed and you look at your own broken track record and you might wonder, can I ever recover from my sexual sins of the past, from abuse I experienced, from mistakes and choices I made? I'm dirty. I'm spoiled. I'll never have what Song of Solomon portrays. And you might be tempted to say, so I won't even try. I'll just give up. But what I want to say to you is this. The Song of Songs is not intended to be a self-improvement manual. It is not a measure of your sexual prowess, and it is not even a guide for sexual intimacy in a one-size-fits-all type of manner. It's given to us as a display of the incredible intimacy husband and wife can share. But along with all of the scripture, it is to break us of our self-focused narcissism and that somehow says, I can accomplish this on my own strength. I'm just going to man up and be the best man she could possibly have. The very foundation of the intimacy of this book of poetry is the foundation of death to self, of denial of desire for a time so that there can be a greater fulfillment. It carries the picture of the gospel, that Jesus lays his life down for his bride. That when, as all the scriptures portray, the bride was unfaithful, the book of Hosea, God's lover, his wife, his bride, literally is multiple times unfaithful, and as a husband, he continues to pursue her. That Jesus is the most patient bridegroom that has ever lived. Jesus isn't married yet. He's still waiting for his wedding night. His bride, the church, is being prepared, and book of Revelation talks about the wedding feast of the Lamb. Jesus is the most patient lover that there ever was. He still waits for his bride. And here's the core of the gospel message. That kind of love is humanly impossible. We should work hard at our marriages. Both men and women have rights and responsibilities they bring into marriage. We should study and learn all we can about marriage. We should certainly study, preeminently be students of our spouses. What makes them tick? How are they wired? What was their family of origin like? Why do they think the way they think? Their personality, strengths, gifts, weaknesses. How well do you know your spouse inside and out? We should be disciplined in protecting our marriages. We should guard time and energy and money that we're able to invest in this most important relationship. Does your spouse know that you love him or her? What actions in your life give evidence? But at the end of the day, and I'm repeating myself, this kind of love is impossible because we will let one another down. We will fall short of our ideals. We will sin against each other. And worst of all, if I put this weight on my wife to be the ultimate fulfillment in my life, it will crush her. It will crush her. And if she looks to me to meet all of her needs, to fulfill her every desire, it would crush me. It's a weight that we cannot carry. But there is one, there is one whose love can't be overcome. 
There's one whose love never grows tired or weary. There is one whose listening ear is always there. There is one who has given his very lifeblood to purchase our freedom. And did you know this one put a seal on your heart and a seal on your arm? Did you know that? Ephesians 1, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Jesus says, I want a seal on your heart and a seal on your arm. His name is the Spirit. Did you know there's one who's overcome death in the grave on our behalf? And one who says, even death can't separate us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And you could add in there or singleness or a bad marriage or all the hurts of life? No. In all of these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Death is not stronger than Jesus' love. And he tells us that fire and water can't overcome the protective watch care of the love of our souls. I love this text, Isaiah. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they won't overcome you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You see, there is just one doctrine that is worth the study of your lifetime. If there was only one doctrine that you had time to look into, it is this, the study of God's love toward his people. The overwhelming, never-ending, all-encompassing love of the Father to each and every one of you sitting in this room. And if there's one doctrine that Satan does not want you to unpack and does not want you to understand and takes and twists and distorts, it is the doctrine of God's love for his children. The old hymn puts it so very well. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen could ever tell goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the sky of parchment made, were every stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O oh, love of God, how rich and pure how measureless and strong it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels song why is the marriage relationship such a powerful symbol because there's no other relationship that portrays even though it is broken and frail and fallen there's no other relationship that portrays the love of the father for his bride as the husband and wife relationship and one of the greatest gifts the church community can give to a watching world is to open our hearts and our homes and our lives to those who are sexually broken and scarred by life. And frankly, that's most of us. To one degree or another, that's most of us. It's a beautiful text in 1 Corinthians 6. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, period. That's depressing. Such 
were some of you. But the next verse is so important. But you were washed. You were washed. You were washed. You are sanctified. You're justified in the name of Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. You see, you can be clean. You can be forgiven. You can walk in freedom from shame. And more than this, you can know the love of the one who will never leave you, who will never forsake you, the one who is always faithful, the one who has given his all to purchase you for himself. And maybe you're here today, and I don't know you, and you could be thinking, that kind of love sounds too good to be true. But even if it is a remote possibility, I sure would like to know it. How would you get in on that? And I would say it's simply as simple as saying yes. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, to your will and to your way. I don't understand it, and I'm sure I don't deserve it. I don't know why you would pursue me like that. But if your word is true and you love me that much, then my only response has to be, I'm yours. I'm yours, Lord. Take this little life of mine with its beauty and with its mess. Take this little life of mine, Lord, and use it for your glory. Yes, Lord. So let me pray for you. Jesus, thank you for these men and women. Thank you for the boys and girls down the hallway. Thank you, Lord, that you gave us a perfect picture of love to let us know that it could actually be real. That there was a lover who was always faithful, who never gave up, who never sinned against us, who never used us or abused us, one who never took advantage of us, one who was never jealous of us in an angry or vengeful way, but was protective and guarded over us. Thank you, Jesus, for the example you set as the lover of our souls, for the example you continue to set, that even though we still tend to run away from you, you just keep chasing after us. And so, Lord, I pray for these men and women as they wrap up this series in this book, don't know what you've been doing in their lives. Don't know about their marriages, about their dating relationships, but Father, may you lift their eyes beyond the pressures of daily life, the pressures of an overly sexualized culture that we live in the middle of. Would you lift their eyes out of that and lift their eyes up to you? Would they see you as the lover of their souls? Would they know and experience the freedom that they have in you? And Father, if there's even one individual in this room who has yet to understand that God loves them that much, I pray, Jesus, right now that you'd pull the veil back off their heart. If the enemy's blocking their eyes and ears, they can't see it, they can't hear it, they can't understand it, Lord, I pray by your spirit you would do the miracle of awakening their soul, opening their eyes, unstopping their ears. Let them, Lord, understand that you love them. Draw them to yourself. And, Lord, in that wooing and in that drawing, would you give them the grace to say yes to you? Would you give all of us the grace to say yes to your love? for your glory and for our great joy. Amen.